following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. A 2018 analysis of prevalence data from 2000 to 2018 across 161 countries and areas conducted by the World Health Organization on behalf of the UN Interagency Working Group on Violence Against Women found that worldwide nearly one in three or 30 percent of women have been subjected to physical and or sexual violence by an intimate partner or non-partner sexual violence, or both. Globally, as many as 38% of all murders of women are committed by intimate partners. On October 7, 1994, a vehicle belonging to a 32-year-old mother of five was found abandoned with blood splattered throughout in Prince Edward Island, Canada. Her battered remains were found in a shallow grave seven months later, on May 6, 1995, and after some feline hairs were discovered on a crucial piece of evidence, a suspect was identified, leading to a scientific breakthrough that would be the first of its kind in the world. This is the story of Shirley Duguay. Shirley Ann Duguay was born on October 11, 1962, to Father Melvin Duguay in Prince Edward Island, Canada. Unfortunately, I couldn't find her mother's name or anything really about her childhood, family, or her life prior to her murder. And I searched for newspaper articles, blog posts, threads. This case in particular had such a groundbreaking moment that it eclipsed many of the details of the case. I even found the episode of Forensic Files titled Perfect Match, spelled P-U-R-R, as in feline cat purring, that highlighted her case. And other than mentioning her father had been watching her children at the time she disappeared, and that he didn't report her missing as she was known to disappear for days at a time on occasion and then return, even they say not much more was known about Shirley. We do know that she was a stay-at-home mother to five children, The oldest was 15, and the youngest were 8-year-old twins. She had also moved back to Prince Edward Island following the split from her common-law spouse and the father of her three children, Doug Beamish. She was living at a now-abandoned home in Richmond, Prince Edward Island, which I assume would be near to her father's home, or perhaps she was living with her father at the time. I'm not sure of that area in particular, but I have been to PEI a number of times for summer vacations with my family, as my grandparents used to have property there, and it was their favorite place on earth. It's often a common stereotype, but the people out east in the Canadian Maritimes are some of the nicest people I've ever met. For those of you not familiar with Prince Edward Island, it's the smallest and least populated province in Canada. Located on the east coast, the island's total area is 5,660 kilometers squared, 
or 2,190 squared miles. And its population is just 142,907 as of 2016. It is a popular summer destination known for its red sand beaches, golf courses, outdoor recreation, and of course, the famous Anne of Green Gables novel, which was written by Lucy Maud Montgomery in 1908. A woman called the police on October 7, 1994, to report an abandoned car on her secluded rural property. When they arrived, police immediately noticed blood splatter throughout the vehicle, which gave them much cause for concern. They also noticed the license plates were removed, likely to delay identification of the car's owner. It was soon discovered the vehicle belonged to 32-year-old Shirley Duguay. The police went to her home to find her father babysitting her children and that she had been missing since October 3rd. As I stated before, this was apparently common for Shirley to do, and so her father assumed she would return soon. But given the amount of blood found in the vehicle, police suspected foul play, and a search for Shirley ensued. The police also stated the blood splatter was consistent with someone being hit. Near the vehicle was a blood-soaked pillow that Shirley sat on while driving, because at just 4 foot 9 inches tall, she had difficulty seeing over the dash without it. She was a very petite woman also, weighing less than 100 pounds. On the episode of Forensic Files, they stated the blood found at the scene was tested against her father's blood to determine if, in fact, it was Shirley's blood. So I'm not sure if the search was delayed until this was conclusive or if the search began and then the blood was confirmed. But nevertheless, the RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, launched the largest search operation in Prince Edward Island history for the missing body of Shirley Duguay. An officer stated that they tried every means possible to locate Shirley's body, including psychics and hypnosis, but sadly, their search was unsuccessful. Months passed, but without a body, the police couldn't determine if, in fact, Shirley had been murdered, as they suspected. But if she had been murdered, the police felt confident they knew who it was. Douglas Leo Beamish was born in 1957 and was also from Prince Edward Island and had a history of violent outbursts, even receiving a peace bond in Ontario prior to Shirley leaving him. A peace bond is essentially a protective order given to persons who believe they are at risk from being hurt by another person. In this case, it appears Shirley requested a peace bond against Doug to protect her from his violent tendencies before moving home to further distance herself from him. Ontario is another Canadian province, which is three provinces west of Prince Edward Island and is home to the capital of Canada, Ottawa, as well as the most populated city, which is Toronto. I read they were in Toronto, but this case has a few inconsistencies, so I'm not exactly sure where they were living prior or the exact reasons for her move back to PEI. 
I'm speculating that they moved for work, but Doug's violent outbursts proved too much for Shirley, and she sought legal protection for herself and her family. It was stated in the episode of Forensic Files that she was in an abusive relationship with Doug on and off for 15 years, and that she had been separated for 18 months at the time of her disappearance. Her father corroborated this, stating, quote, Every woman that lives with an abusive husband or boyfriend or whatever and end up murdered react in the same way. People advise them to not go with them or live with them, but for some reason, they do. End quote. He is also the person who gave police Doug's name as a possible suspect early on in the case, telling them about Doug's abuse towards Shirley over the years, stating, quote, I would have killed him. I would have killed that guy. I think I would have did a good deed if I had a shot him, killed him, because she'd be alive today. I'd be in jail, but she'd be alive, end quote. It was clear Doug had motive to hurt Shirley, and this was made even more apparent when a letter he had written came to light. Written on a single page, in blood, Doug threatened to kill her before allowing her to have custody of their children. Her father again corroborated the existence of the letter. I'm not sure if it was kept and used as evidence or if she'd already thrown it out and her father just let them know but it was used to prove motive for her murder, and it was apparently used during trial, so I do believe it still existed. I just can't confirm that for absolute. Despite their efforts, Shirley's body was still missing, but while searching, police did find a shovel with two long dark hairs on it, about 800 meters or half a mile from Shirley's car, that when tested, proved to be, quote, microscopically similar, end quote, to that on Shirley's own hairbrush, which they used for comparison. Weeks into the search, they came upon their biggest piece of potential evidence yet. 24 kilometers or 15 miles from Shirley's car, they discovered a plastic bag and inside contained a brown leather jacket and a pair of running shoes. The jacket was covered in blood, and upon testing, it was confirmed to be Shirley's blood. The shoes and jacket also appeared to belong to a man, and were definitely too large to be Shirley's items, given how petite she was. Of course, Doug was adamant the items didn't belong to him, and so investigators set out to scientifically prove they did. Now, this scientific stuff I find fascinating, and a fact about me, I originally wanted to get into genetics as a high school student or criminology, which is fitting considering I now have a true crime podcast, but the science behind the case is why I selected it for this month's episode. I find it so interesting what these police officers and investigators did on a pretty isolated island in 1994, and it makes those cases where police don't pursue leads or use DNA or scientific testing and claim they didn't have the means, etc., which happens frequently in cases I read about or listen to on other podcasts. 
it makes those excuses seem even more flimsy. Of course, each case is different, but I truly think this came down to a close-knit community that wanted to see justice done for one of their own and moved mountains to make that happen. The shoes, which were the same size as Doug wore, underwent testing, which compared their wear patterns to molds made of Doug's feet. They found that Doug's feet were slightly pronated, meaning they turned inward slightly, and his toes were hyperflexed, meaning his toenails would have rubbed on the inside roof of his shoes. When they compared the worn shoes found in the plastic bag, it was consistent with Doug's feet. They also found a photo of Doug wearing an identical jacket to the one found, which was taken just a day before Shirley went missing. But these were circumstantial, and they needed more definitive proof that the items without a doubt belonged to Doug. Luckily, on the jacket they found about 20 white, brittle hairs belonging to an animal on the lining. An officer remembered that while questioning Doug at his home, he saw a pure white cat in the house. This cat's name was Snowball and would end up being the nail in the coffin, so to speak, in the case against Doug Beamish. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart. And I hope through these stories, we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have now started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. Again, I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. Please note my Patreon postings will be on hiatus until September 30th due to unforeseen personal circumstances but rest assured these episodes will continue to be posted as scheduled. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships every month to various charities that support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of August 2021 is Dress for Success Toronto. Since 2009, Dress for Success Toronto's mission has been, quote, to empower women to achieve economic independence by providing a network of support, professional attire, and the development tools to help women thrive in work and in life, end quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. Upon discovering the link between the white hairs found in the jacket to the cat at Doug Beamish's house, 
investigators set out to have the hair's DNA tested to prove the jacket belonged to Doug. However, they soon realized this type of testing had never been done before. So after hundreds of calls, they located a man named Dr. Stephen O'Brien, who is a geneticist at the National Cancer Institute in the United States. And he specifically researched hereditary illnesses in cats. He agreed to help, and the blood sample from Snowball and the hairs found on the jacket were sent to his lab for DNA testing. It was found to be a 1 in 17 million chance that the hairs found on the jacket did in fact belong to Snowball. But given the island's isolation, they also had to prove another cat couldn't have the same DNA profile just because of inbreeding due to a small population of cats on the island. But after testing 20 random cats for genetic diversity, they were all determined to be unique and that their findings were accurate. The jacket did belong to Doug. Sadly, seven months after her disappearance, Shirley's body was discovered in a shallow grave by a fisherman who noticed the brush laying over her body, looked out of place, and investigated it. I'm not sure how far from the car, the shovel, or the jacket she was found, but her body was badly beaten. Her nose was broken, her jaw was broken in three places, and a tooth was found embedded in her lung, which just shows you the sheer force of her attack. Her cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma. Again, conflicting reports state that she was actually strangled and her hands bound behind her back. But according to the forensic files episode, it was as I described. And I'm inclined to believe that more simply because they have witness accounts. But she may have also had her hands bound. Another report stated she was found 16 kilometers or 10 miles from her vehicle and the feline DNA was actually 1 in 45 million, not 1 in 17 million as I stated. But again, I'm inclined to believe the Forensic Files episode. I just thought I'd mention these conflicting reports. I've said it before, but it's like a game of telephone sometimes and I tend to believe earlier reports as they have had less time from the crime and are often more accurate in their information. And direct quotes or interviews from police or family members are obviously much more reliable. It was actually extremely lucky that they found Shirley's body when they did. As she went missing in October and was found in May, her body was preserved somewhat by the frigid temperatures of the PEI winter. In fact, the day her body was found, a freak snowstorm occurred. A police officer described putting his own coat on her body to protect her from the snow because he felt so bad for her remains just laying there. It was a sign of respect, which shows you how much these officers cared about bringing Shirley home to her family and giving her justice. But had her body been discovered even just a few weeks later, 
there would have been significantly more decomposition, which would have made her cause of death and identification much more difficult. With all the evidence against him, Doug Beamish went to trial and was convicted of second-degree murder. There was also unidentified blood found in Shirley's vehicle that upon testing was discovered to be Doug's blood mixed with Shirley's, which also makes me wonder if he had scratches or bruises on his body when police initially questioned him that went unnoticed. It also means that Shirley fought back during her attack, which makes me wonder if she was actually tied up or if she was kicking. The prosecution sought first-degree murder, presumably because of the letter Doug wrote. If you remember my last case, Felicia Barnes, first-degree refers to premeditated murder, while second-degree refers to intent to kill, but was not premeditated. I'm not sure what led to the second-degree conviction, but Doug Beamish was sentenced to 18 years to life for the murder of Shirley Duguay on July 19, 1996. Doug Beamish continues to assert his innocence and has appealed his conviction twice. Both were denied as was his parole in 2013, in which the board stated, quote, His lack of understanding as to why he acts out violently brings into question his ability to not repeat the same behavior, end quote. While this case had some interesting scientific elements, including the first time feline DNA was used in a murder conviction, which, by the way, has since been used in other cases all over the world. It's still a horrible example of an abusive relationship and the all-too-frequent outcome for abuse victims. Shirley's five children had to grow up without their mother, and Doug's children also grew up without their father because of his rage, jealousy, anger, and hatred. Because how dare she not endure more violence? How dare she leave her abuser and take her children to safety? My heart hurts for her family that tried in vain to protect her and instead had to bury her. Thank you for listening to the story of Shirley Duguay. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.